He's a neurobiologist who wrote a book about DMT, Alien Information Theory by Andrew Gallimore. Explores the idea that DMT affords us access to a hyperspace realm. But why would anyone take this realm to be real? Find out in today's Spectral Skull Session. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. I am Dane, and this is the Spectral Skull Session. This session is part two of our DMT reality series in which we explore why people are taking DMT and the DMT experience so seriously. As the philosophers might say, why are they taking it veridically? Veridical meaning reflecting reality. This episode is a review of the book Alien Information Theory, Psychedelic Drug Technologies and the Cosmic Game, published in 2021 by Andrew Gallimore, Ph.D., Gallimore is a neurobiologist, chemist, pharmacologist, and writer interested in the relationship between psychedelic drugs, the brain, consciousness, and the structure of reality. This is according to his website. He has 14 research publications to his name according to independent research aggregating databases. His research publications tend to have such titles as The Biosynthesis of Poly hectide-derived polycyclic ethers. Currently, he is an independent author, but until recently, he held a position at the uh, Institute of Science and Technology in Okinawa, Japan. Okay, here's the thesis of his book, as near as I can tell. DMT can be understood from a computational neuroscience standpoint as a technology, a tool. It allows the human brain to decouple from our three-dimensional environment and to reorient to a hyperdimensional environment, which is always there, but which you cannot access without DMT. DMT apparently being a key or a reality switch technology that exists for the purpose of allowing us to access another realm, which he calls hyperspace. I'm going to summarize the book quickly and objectively, and then I'm going to critique it. So uh, let me say it's a beautiful book. He did the cover art himself. He's clearly a talented artist. And there's a lot of like, uh, it's like Atari type graphics, like uh, digital looking, but also very blocky. And that goes along quite well with the themes in the book that you're going to hear about very quickly. He also loves to quote Terrence McKenna. And he begins with the quote, the main thing to understand is that we are imprisoned 
and some kind of art. The first chapters of the book involve introducing a tremendous baseline of background knowledge. Um, we're given a rundown on physics and information theory. We're shown how the physical world can be reduced to pure information because, for example, every atom is made up of subatomic particles, which themselves can be described in just a couple binary properties. Quarks, they either spin up or down. They're either positive or negative. They are either charm or strange, etc., etc. So you can describe a subatomic particle as just a series of strings of ones or zeros, right? One being yes or zero being no to any given property. And then atoms are just aggregates of subatomic particles. So they're just concatenations of strings of ones and zeros. Of course, physical location can be quantitized in just three dimensions. So really, the whole universe just boils down to information. And then in the second chapter, we're giving a, a rundown on information theory. There's a long tangent on Conway's Game of Life. Conway's Game of Life is a cellular automata simulation that is designed to help you see how complex properties emerge from very simple rules. It is a game. It's literally a turn-based game consists of a grid, like uh, like in the game Minesweeper, where you've got these different, just like a checkerboard. Any given square is a cell. A cell is either dead or alive, right, on or off. Every turn, the game calculates whether a cell is going to turn on or off, depending on how the rules go. And there's just four rules. Rule one, any live cell with fewer than two live neighbors dies, as if by underpopulation. Rule number two, any live cell with two or three live neighbors lives on to the next generation. Rule three, any live cell with more than three live neighbors dies, as if by overpopulation. Rule number four, any dead cell with exactly three live neighbors becomes a live cell as if by reproduction. And you, as the user, get to set the initial condition. So you can draw whatever pattern of live and dead cells you want to onto a Conway game of life. Then you hit play, and what happens is it just keeps calculating turn by turn what should happen next, and you get these really weird patterns. Like there are these things called gliders, and they're collections of cells that are close to each other, and they will reproduce another glider next to, and then again to the next of them. And so the glider kind of keeps creating to the right, and dying off to the left, and it looks like it's moving across the screen. So the argument that Gallimore pushes in this second chapter is that we can see the idea of emergent properties, that you know the universe just consists of basic binary properties, and then we can apply some simple rules to them, and from those simple rules, all the complex, amazing properties of life emerge, right? Your thoughts, your feelings, you know, humans and animals, and spatial phenomena all just kind of come out of a couple simple rules. And the purpose to all this is to hammer home this idea that reality just is information. Gallimore gets philosophical at one point and paraphrasing Kant, he says, the world in itself is information. And then he goes on to say, quote, your brain generates a highly complex form of information that has the special property of subjectivity. You experience this information as your world, whether you are awake, 
dreaming or at the peak of a DMT trip. Our brain evolved as a generator, receiver, and processor of information. More specifically, it evolved to receive and process information from the environment, the surrounding grid, and then to make judicious decisions regarding behaviors based on the result of its computations, end quote. So as a computational neurobiologist, Gallimore is building this picture of the human brain as a model-building machine. It's taking input from the world, which is, you know, discrete, binary, and digital, and then it uses its discrete, binary, and digital nature as a neuron complex to simulate the world, which is then what you experience. So you hear a meow, and you smell a dank smell, and your mind invents a wet cat out there in the dark, right? And that's your, the model that you build in your head of reality. And a well-functioning brain builds models of reality that contain a lot of what Gallimore calls mutual information. That is, you could learn about reality from inspecting the model. The way you can learn a lot about someone's face from looking at a photograph of them. Uh, and he tells us that this modeling that we do with our brains, you need to understand it in order to know how psychedelics work. Because, quote, of course, some models will be more or less adaptive than others, depending on the relationship between model and the environment. A schizophrenic's world, for example, might well be markedly different to that of the ostensibly sane majority. We can't, however, say that the schizophrenic's world is less real than anyone else's world only perhaps that it is less adaptive, containing less useful information about the environment and more information unrelated to it. There is less mutual information between the schizophrenic's brain and their environment. The same applies to the altered worlds elicited by psychedelic drugs, which modulate the information generated by the brain and change its relationship to the environment, end quote. So he tells us that there's a looser match between model and reality that's taking place when people do psychedelics. And he has a whole chapter on how psychedelics modulate the brain, right? Causing us to be more flexible in our modeling of reality so that we can be more creative. And this also explains the weird visual experiences people will have so that a person on, say, mescaline might see a garden hose as a snake or an umbrella as an owl. This is all very interesting, uh, but DMT is barely mentioned at all. It isn't until page 116, more than halfway through the book, that we get any discussion of DMT in the hyperspace realm. Only there, we're finally told, hyperspace refers to the phenomenal world experienced during a DMT trip, and it is a model of the higher dimensional environment to which DMT gates access. Without saying it explicitly, Gallimore strongly implies that hyperspace is a real place when he tackles the topic, telling us that not all DMT users enter the DMT world at the same place. Of course, we shouldn't expect that to happen. Rather, it seems that people are randomly deposited into the hyperspace realm when they do DMT. Now, if you're starting to notice here, he does seem to, um, he seems to oscillate a little bit between this, uh, the model, he seems to oscillate a little bit between seeing DMT as giving you access to a realm 
and physically relocating you into another realm. But I think that's because in his physics, everything reduces to information anyway. So there's really no difference between being physically relocated somewhere and just um, having information from that place beamed into your mind. He talks about what people experience when they do DMT, witnessing sprawling alien landscapes before encountering entities ranging from the savage insectoid and reptilian aliens. Uh, and then he tells us that by far the most famous denizens of these fantastic realms are the sprightly mischievous beings known as the elves. When you do DMT for the first time, you often discover these elves cheering for you. They're excited you came. There are lights and bells that are ringing. Everyone is celebrating. And he says, why is that? Because you've broken through to the hyperspace realm. They were hoping you'd be able to do this, and you finally figured out how to do it just by smoking DMT. Doesn't seem like much of an accomplishment to me. But he only waxes poetic about the DMT experience a little bit before diving back into the hard neurobiology of the phenomena. He tells us that DMT is fundamentally unlike other psychedelics. You see, other... Other psychedelics cause a looser and fuzzier model in our mind. But DMT actually causes the brain to stop attending to sensory input entirely. We stop attending to our physical realm around us. And we tune into input coming from higher dimensions. Apparently, we are existing in a three-dimensional cross-slice of an n-dimensional space where n is just an integer of any size larger than three he doesn't tell us how many dimensions there are ultimately but we're just on this little slice of reality like ants in a child's ant colony we think that this is all there is to the universe when in reality there's an orthogonal direction we could travel in which would allow us to be in a very different place that very different place being it's very proximate to us we just don't know how to look in that direction and in fact he calls it the grid that's what we're that's the 3d time slice that we're trapped in it's the grid he tells us minds are a thing that hyperdimensional entities are interested in extracting from the grid apparently he met a dmt entity at one point that told him minds are mined like jewels so he gets the impression and strongly insinuates that perhaps we are like being grown or cultivated by higher entities who then want us to break out of our three-dimensional realm and into hyperspace. And this, in fact, is the purpose of life, he tells us at the end of the book, is to use DMT and then figure out how to ascend to the hyperspace realm and eventually figure out how to continue to exist there independently of your body, becoming a hyperspatial entity, a DMT elf yourself, this is what Gallimore calls the great cosmic game. The great cosmic game is mastering the synthesis and usage of DMT and then whatever else is required to transfigure yourself from a physical being into a DMT hyperspace entity. So I'm going to stop there and skip over several later chapters where Gallimore walks us through how a 3D brain can construct an n-dimensional representation. He is very concerned with the mechanics 
of how we could interfa interface with hyperspace, but there's so much neurobiology and information theory. I didn't really understand that. And um, part of it was that as I was reading the book, it was becoming clear to me that the details were not going to answer my questions in the deep sense. I, they weren't going to really like help me see why I should take DMT seriously as a thing that gives me access to another dimension. And so this is my core complaint with this book. This book gives us absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that there is a DMT hyperspace. If I were to try to construct the book as an argument, it does not fly. A caricature of the book would go something like this. Premise one, reality is digital. It's ones and zeros. Premise two, the brain can be represented digitally. Neurons are either on or off, hence one or zero. Premise three, DMT alters the way the brain processes information and interacts with reality. Conclusion, DMT gives us access to another world. That argument just doesn't work. You could replace DMT with any drug, marijuana, alcohol, nicotine. They all alter the brain. They all change the way we process information. Gallimore says that himself, right? So, but he doesn't think that marijuana or alcohol or nicotine give us access to another dimension. So why does he think that DMT gives us access to another dimension? The only clue that I got of an answer to this came from listening to his podcasts. In his more recent podcasts, he talks about how the DMT experience is hyper-detailed, precise, and it involves representations of things that people have never seen before. For example, seven-dimensional Fabergé eggs get mentioned in the book. So in the podcasts that he gives, the podcast interviews, he seems to be saying, these aren't things, the things you see in the DMT realm are not things that you ever get represented in your world. And so it doesn't make sense to think of the DMT experience as a distorted or loose attempt by the brain to model this world. It seems to be a model of some other world entirely. But that's not something that I found in the book. I think maybe it's hinted at at the book and maybe I kind of missed it. Um, now, another thing that I need to say, so my frustration with this book was that it doesn't make the case for the reality of DMT hyperspace realms or DMT entities. Even the cosmic game is just dogmatically asserted, just that that's the meaning of life is to escape from the DMT realm. And in his defense, after I read the book, I went back and I reread the introduction, and I noticed that Gallimore does describe his book as a textbook. And textbooks don't really do the proving because they're usually designed to sort of introduce you to the theory. And Andrew Gallimore seems to see himself as somebody who's developing a whole new science, a science of exploring and understanding DMT hyperspace. And, uh, and that's fine, but I was a little frustrated because since he's a, he's a neuroscientist, I expected him to be engaging with the problem of how DMT would give your brain access to another reality from a standpoint of a neuroscientist. So let me explain. We're all familiar 
with a kind of neuroscience explanation of depression. For decades, Americans have been hearing that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. We're told there's a subset of neurons in our brains that rely on a special molecule, a neurotransmitter called serotonin. Neurons that rely heavily on this molecule also tend to be part of the mechanical circuitry responsible for mood regulation. If your serotonin receptors don't work properly or you don't manufacture enough endogenous serotonin, you'll have low brain activity in your mood circuit, and that will mean you are depressed. But if you ingest molecules that can get into your brain and help your serotonin molecules dock with your serotonin receptors, your mood circuit will become more active and your mood will be lifted. This is a theory of depression that I understand is now largely regarded as uh, like a toy theory and not taken seriously anymore, but we've all heard it repeated over and over in the, the drug commercials, right? So, but this is a, it's an example of a sort of neuroscientist's way of thinking about the brain. The brain is a machine that exists to do certain kinds of functions. And how do they, how do they figure out what those functions are? They have to like, they have to actually look at normal brains and you have to look at depressed brains. And then you have to take samples, right? You think, well, maybe there's something different between these brains and like, well, is it serotonin, right? Well, we'll take sampling, like, well, take some serotonin out of this brain, take some serotonin out of that brain. Oh, it looks like that brain, which is, belongs to the depressed organism, has lower amounts of serotonin. So that's the process you go through. Uh, I'm vastly oversimplifying it, but it's like, it's like a stock model of how scientists think about the brain and try to figure out what different parts of the brain are supposed to do. And he hasn't done any of that work, and he doesn't talk about any of that work in the book. Did you even begin to figure out that there was a part of the brain designed to access DMT hyperspace? You'd have to have one set of brains that are in contact with DMT hyperspace and another set of brains that aren't. But that would require you knowing which brains are already in touch with DMT hyperspace. And most people who come at the brain from a neuroscience perspective also tend to assume some kind of evolutionary theory. Our brain, the reason why it can construct models of reality is because we were selected to be able to build models of reality. And we have these wonderful things that our brain is attached to called organs, right? Like our nerves and our eyes go into the visual cortex. They lead to a, right? The nerves in our eyes lead to a part of the brain that allows us to represent visual imagery. That's how we can get visual representations of the world around us. But how would your brain interface with a fourth dimension or a fifth dimension, right? Like, wouldn't you have to have a fourth or fifth dimensional sensory organ? He hints at that because he says that we're part of a larger information processing organism. But... He doesn't ever seem to get around to saying that. I think we would have to have fourth and fifth dimensional, you know, eyes and ears in order to interact with these fourth and fifth dimensional things. But since our survival and reproduction doesn't depend on what happens in these fourth and fifth dimensions, it's hard to see how we would have maintained these organs over time. I think that they would have just mutated and, and sort of devolved the way we're losing our sense of smell because our life doesn't really depend on it. And so my, the final thing that bothered me is I kind of thought that since this guy has a neuroscience background, he would at least, 
even if he's not trying to make a real argument, just kind of building a textbook, I thought he would at least think about neuroscience-type objections to taking DMT seriously. And what I'm talking about here, you might be familiar with a phenomenon called Copgrass syndrome. It's where people who have injury to a particular part of the brain will insist that their loved ones have been replaced by imposters. They have a persistent delusion that the people they've known for years are not really who they claim to be. The best explanation that anyone has been able to come up with for Copgrass syndrome is that there is a particular part of the brain that is responsible for connecting a familiar visual representation to your experience of familiarity. So you look at something that you've seen before and you need a special brain region to kick in and cause you to have that feeling of familiarity. If that brain region is destroyed, you look at the face of someone that you've known for years and you can say, yes, like they match the exact description of this person I've known for years, but you won't have that experience of familiarity and you will be strongly inclined to rationalize some kind of explanation for what's happening that privileges your own experience of it not being familiar, where you'll say, well, they've been replaced by an imposter or something's wrong here. This isn't who they say they are. So Copgrass syndrome is a case where a very high order qualitative experience, this experience of familiarity, depends on a very specific brain region. And it shows that physical manipulation of the brain can produce high level representations that are false and that then lead to complex rationalizations, right? The story about they've been replaced by an imposter sort of flows naturally from many people who are suffering from Copgrass syndrome. They invent similar stories about what must be happening. I know that the people who smoke DMT are very impressed by how wise the beings they encounter seem to be, by how complex that world appears to be, by various other higher level qualitative experiences. But I would think that a neuroscientist would at least raise the question of whether it's possible that DMT is triggering brain regions connected to the experience of wisdom, right, or the experience of complexity. And then maybe when you come out of the experience, the descriptions you give of the experience are post hoc rationalizations built around how intense that experience of the higher order phenomena was. So I'll stop reviewing the book there. Those are my three critiques. It leads me to a meta critique, something that's been bothering me about DMT users. It's really bothering me how many people use DMT and come away convinced the experiences are real, veridical, and so fully convinced they seem to have an almost impaired ability to recognize how exotic this idea is to other people, how much explanatory work they need to do to make this extremely exotic idea even palatable to those of us who are not doing DMT. I feel like this is weird, and I'm finding myself inclined to think that it's a reason for thinking that the DMT experience might have something more in common with things like Copgrass syndrome than it does with real contact with entities from another, another dimension. Because when I read this book, it was 
someone who is clearly a very, very intelligent, highly capable neurobiologist and a talented graphic artist. He writes beautifully. It's very clear. Much of it is over my head, and I know it's not because um, it's not well written. It's just because he's he's got a PhD in neuro and computational neurobiology, and I don't. But then suddenly he's talking about the DMT entities, their reality. The cosmic game is introduced dogmatically with no argument or not even very much explanation. And it, it's just like, um, you know, if Isaac Newton just suddenly had a religious epiphany and became, well, he, it's not a great metaphor because Isaac Newton was a really deeply religious person, but um, it doesn't make a, it, something doesn't feel right to me about the way people are talking about their DMT experiences. And this book is just another example of that. So, um, you know, I'm going to keep looking into this. I think it's very interesting. I've actually been thinking about maybe having, trying to get Andrew Gallimore to come on the show because I did touch base with him about his biography over Twitter. He did respond. I, I just, but I don't know if anybody would want to come on the show after that kind of book review. Um, let me also say there's another good book review out there. Peter Shudrostet Hughes. He's got an impossible to pronounce Scandinavian name with multiple umlauts in it. Um, 2019. I, th I would just look up Peter Hughes, 2019. Gallimore. You should be able to get this book review by a Swedish philosopher. And he did get digs into the metaphysics of the book, and I didn't want to go into any of those criticisms because they've been done elsewhere. So that's my take on this book, and my take on DMT is, uh, I guess, continuing to be somewhat negative about the experience because, again, I'm just so disturbed at how people who do the DMT don't feel like they need to explain or argue for the reality of what they're experiencing. It seems so unworthy of proof for them. So... Hopefully we're going to get to the bottom of this at some point. Uh, stick with us as we do that. Next next week, we're going to have, uh, again, I'll just have to do a, an update and a news thing, and then we'll get to the last DMT episode probably two weeks from now. Okay, so until next time, everybody, thanks for listening. I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.